Father in heaven, I pray that our time now in these next few minutes would be a means of our getting ready to go with Jesus outside the camp, bearing abuse with him because here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city which is to come. I pray that we would strengthen each other's hands in the cause of suffering and take our share of suffering for the gospel of Christ. I pray that murmuring and grumbling would be removed from our hearts and our mouths and that with those who have paid very high prices, we might put our hands upon our mouths, kiss the rod, and thank you for your mercy in pain. So come, Lord, and fit CRM to suffer like the Burnhams suffered and suffer like the Apostle Paul suffered. And teach us, O oh God, now why it is essential and how it is to be born. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of the will of him who subjected it in hope that the whole creation would be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. The whole creation groans in childbirth together until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Which means much of our suffering is simply owing to the fact that we are part of a cursed and futile creation. The whole creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but of the will of Him who subjected it in hope that it would be set free to inherit the glorious liberty of the children of God. And in the meantime, until we all inherit the glorious liberty along with creation of the children of God, we, even we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly. Romans 8.23 is one of the most important verses in my life. Even we, you hear the stress because there are a lot of people who were saying the health, wealth, and prosperity thing in Paul's day as well as today. You become a Christian, you won't have to groan as much. I tell you, if you become a Christian, you will groan more. 
not only because you stay a part of the fallen, futile, painful, broken, shattered, sinful creation, but because you add on top of that an offense of the cross in the world. Don't, don't be a Christian to escape pain. It won't work. So I begin with Romans 8. It's one of the most glorious chapters. The Puritans called it the Great Eight. Memorize Romans 8. It will change your life. Every Christian should be able to rest in every verse of Romans 8. The hard ones and the sweet ones. But I don't stop with Romans 8. Let me just underline this point of the necessity of suffering with three or four other texts. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Here's Paul coming back after he had planted these little churches on the first missionary journey. He's coming back on his encouragement run. What does he say? What would you say? What is your bottom line in discipleship when you get somebody to Christ? What's the first thing or among the first things that you say? Here's what Paul said. He went strengthening the souls of the saints, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Say it right off the bat, folks. Don't you dare attract people to Jesus without telling them the cost. It will be a lie. Say, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. There is no detour around tribulations for the saints of God. That's Acts 14, 22. Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3. He's planted the church in Thessalonica. It's been some weeks. He's writing a letter back to them. He's very concerned. He had sent to them Timothy to find out how they were doing. Were they standing? Because there was a lot of hostility when he left. Would they make it or would they cave? They're baby Christians. Here's what he wrote. We sent Timothy to establish and to exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know we are destined for this. That's 1 Thessalonians 3, 3. In other words, it's the, the literal Greek is we lie. This, we lie for this. We were destined for this. We're appointed for this. This is our lot. Don't regard this. Remember the words of Peter? Don't regard the fiery ordeal as something strange happening to you. There's so many Christians in America that when they have something terrible happen to them, they start to ask God to explain things as though he hadn't told them this is normal. Absent pain is abnormal. Present pain is normal. That's the point of these texts. The sufferings of this present time are everywhere, Paul said. I die daily. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. I wrestle with beasts. Why do I do this if there's no resurrection? I am of all people most to be pitied if there's no resurrection. Most American evangelicals could not say that. My life is to be pitied if there's no resurrection. Frankly, we have a pretty cool life. In fact, Jesus takes away our problems. 
We have a nice house in the suburbs. We have a big insurance policy. We have a big fat retirement. We have 911. We have antibiotics. We have running water, hot and cold. It's amazing what we have. Why would anybody say, I am of all people most to be pitied? It's because Paul embraced this third banner. It didn't just sneak up on him. He embraced it. He chose it, just like Jesus did. You choose the hard path and you know the price is going to be high and you embrace the path of love, hard incarnational love, and you know the price is going to be high and you embrace it and then somebody might ask you a reason for the hope that is in you. Here's another text. We're still on the first point of the necessity of suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. One of the reasons that text lands on American Christians with such incomprehensibility is because we have so domesticated the word godliness. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Now if godliness means don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't sass your parents, and don't go to dirty movies and sleep around. If that's all that godliness means is, no wonder you're not getting persecuted, right? Who would persecute you for that? Nobody. They might roll their eyes if you don't go to a certain movie with them or watch a certain video late at night at some party. They might roll their eyes, but godliness surely means a radical, God-centered life. It's always lifting up God, always putting Jesus in the conversation. Always orienting your life around what will magnify Jesus. Godliness surely means more than an avoidance ethic. One last text on this issue. Luke 21, 12. Jesus is talking now, and he says to his disciples, they will lay their hands on you, and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and courts and governors. Some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. Now that's the way Jesus taught his disciples. You'll be hated by everybody, and some of you they will kill and not a hair of your head will perish. That's a very strange way of talking. Some of you they will kill, and not a hair of your head will perish. They will lift your hair when they cut off your head. Well, probably not quite, huh? That's probably not what it means. What does it mean? Not a bird falls from the sky apart from your father, and you are more valuable, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Fear not those who kill the body. I tell you whom you shall fear. Fear him who after he is killed can cast soul and body into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
and he's your father and not a bird drops in Venezuela to the ground without his permission and nobody touches you without your father's permission nobody touches you without your father's design Therefore, not a hair of your head is going to perish. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword separate you from the love of Christ? No. As it is written, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered in all these things. We are more than conquerors. That's what it means that not a hair of your head will perish. Of course they're going to cut off our heads. Of course they're going to hate us all day long. Of course they're going to want to push us out of the barrio. Not a hair of your head will perish. Just keep loving them back. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. And some will believe. Paul said, I become all things to all people. And for him that meant pain. For us it tends to mean be like the world. For him it meant pain. In order that I might save some. And he knew that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, would treat him the same way they treated Jesus. But some would believe and that's what we live for and that's what we're willing to die for. So here's my question. If suffering, according to those texts, Romans 8, Acts 14, 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 Timothy 3, Luke 21, plus dozens of others. If suffering is necessary, both natural suffering in terms of disease, because we're part of a fallen, broken, feudal creation, and persecution kinds of suffering, both kinds are our lot. How are we going to endure in our calling? And the answer, I'm going to get the answer mainly from the book of Hebrews. And so if you want to follow with me, let's go to Hebrews 10. The book of Hebrews, I preached through this book a few years ago, about six years ago, I think. It took me about two years to get through it. And... I discovered something that every missionary should know and probably does know, and I'm just slow, is that this book that tends to push people away because it seems to have a lot of Melchizedek and priesthood and sacrifices and strange things, I mean, anything to do with our culture and, oh, how are kids going to get this, blah, blah, blah. This book is perhaps the most radical call to suffering and the most radical solution to perseverance in suffering of any book in the Bible. And we tend to put it away because it's got some hard things in it. Oh, I think this book could set the world on fire if we Christians grasped what's here in chapters 10 to 13. And so let me take most of my time now to walk you through Hebrews 10 to 13, just pointing out the answer to the question, 
How are we going to endure if suffering is appointed to be our lot as a Christian and all the more as a missionary, where we are pushing against the darkness all the time and encountering tremendous opposition, human and supernatural? Well, the answer is, for the joy that is set before us is how we endure. The present inbreaking of the joyful experience of hope in the joy that is set before us. I'm going to show you that that is not an isolated idea in my head or in this book. So let's look at about four or five passages. Chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you became Christians through the light of the gospel. You endured a hard struggle. Okay, he's reminding them that it cost them something to become a Christian. With sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. So get the picture. They became Christians. Affliction and persecution became some of them were thrown into prison, others were not. Those who were not had to face the question, shall we go visit them and risk our own lives and our own families, or shall we go underground and play it cool and let them suffer alone and thus keep ourselves alive so that we can preach the gospel more? Oh, that's a good argument. And here's what they did, verse 34. You had compassion on those in prison. And you, here's the word, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. All right, now there's my whole theology of suffering in one verse. It's a call to love, compassion on the prisoners. You don't have to go there. But they're there. You can go underground and save your skin, or you can take them some food and water, because in those days, probably, if you didn't have friends to do it, nobody did it. But if you go, you will pay. They will wreck your house while you're gone. They will put stones through the windows, write graffiti on the walls, burn your furniture. Maybe there'll be nothing left. So as you look over your left shoulder on the way to the prison and see your house going up in flames, what did they do? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They sang on the way to jail, watching their house go up. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's keep going. Oh, may God do it for CRM. Embrace it. Do the hard thing. Take the risks. Pay the price. That's verse or text number one. Let's go to the next one. Chapter, oh, I went too quickly. I went too quickly over the end of verse 34. I underlined the word joy, but you've got to ask, where's it come from? And they said, since you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. 
Don't ever say in my presence if you don't want me to get upset. Christians are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. I tell you, you can't be of any earthly good if you're not heavenly minded. That's what this text says. We have a better possession and an abiding one in heaven. I tell you, heaven is one of the most powerful unleashings of love and sacrifice this world has ever known. You know one of the reasons teenagers and young adults and 30-somethings and baby boomers are not loving in America, that is not laying down their lives for the inner city? It's because they don't believe in heaven. Oh, sure, they say they do. Sure, they say they're escaping from hell and got forgiveness of sins. Baloney, they don't love heaven. They don't love Christ. They don't passionately long to be with the one who laid down his life for the poor. They just want to get out of fire. If you love Christ, if you long to be with Christ, and you hear him summoning you through love and through pain into everlasting joy so that it will be better than your retirement and better than your 911 and better than your house in the suburbs and better than your RV, then you know you can let it all go and really love instead of looking just like the rest of the world. I don't buy it too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. I say baloney and to hell with that comment. Let us get people heavenly minded so that they can let this world go. Let's help our teenagers believe in heaven so that they suffer. I was at the Alive Conference in Ohio. There were about 40,000 teenagers there. They didn't all come to hear me speak, but lots of them did. So I was on this main stage after this big rock band, and I ended with an illustration because I want these teenagers so bad. I want them so bad. I want martyrs out of that generation. I don't want to offer them anything but martyrdom. And so I ended my talk with this illustration from Iwo Jima. I read this book, Flags of Our Fathers, last summer on vacation. It just broke me in half because if our Marines, 8,600 dead Marines on Iwo Jima, one-third of all the deaths in the Pacific Theater for 43 months happened in one month on Iwo Jima as they went wave after wave after wave into the hidden guns of the Japanese and they took the island and illustration after illustration of these incredibly brave Marines throwing their lives in front of these bayonets and these bullets. And I said, where are the Christians? We got a battle in front of us that is so 10,000 times more important than taking this little eight mile square island of Iwo Jima. Where is the call today to the teenagers? And I ended with this illustration of, and I forget his name right now, the pilot, but he was strafing the beach trying to get ready for these and they were almost all 18 or 19 years old. The average age of the dead Marine in Iwo Jima was 19 years old, and 8,600 of them are dead there. If you got parents, you got to go there to visit them. He was stripping the beach with his Corsair, and he got hit with gunfire from the bunkers, and he and he couldn't get complete control of his plane and suddenly he realized he's heading right for the Amtraks who are coming in to dump the Marines and he's gonna plow right into his own boys. And he's struggling and the people in the Amtraks can see into the cockpit as he's coming angling down and he's doing everything he can not to hit his own boys. And suddenly they watched him 
flip his Corsair upside down and bring it right down between two ranks of Amtrak's and exploded in the water. And the radio from the cockpit could be heard on the boats, the big boats out in the water watching all this happen. And what they heard was, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a terrible feeling. Everything's coming my way. And he killed himself to save his, his marine friends. And I said to these 5,000 teenagers who come to hear me speak, I said, that's cool. Painting your toenails is not cool. Wearing the right shirt is not cool. Having the right colored hair is not cool. That's cool. You want to be cool? Get in a Corsair and put it right between two ranks of Amtrak's and pay the price. Oh, let us have a message for our churches, for our families, for ourselves. Say, come on, we've got two seconds to live on this earth. That's what James said, right? The breath that comes out of your mouth on a cold morning, a vapor, how long does it last? If you're in Minnesota, it'll last two seconds. If you're not, one second. That's how long you get here. And then, heaven. And if heaven means nothing to you, what are you going to do? You're going to live just like everybody else because this is heaven, and i got to get as much now as I possibly can. Oh, let's not buy that thing too heavenly-minded. Bad language comes to my mind when I think about that. Now I'm ready to leave this text. Let's go to chapter 11. I'm going to skip some. Let's go to the end of chapter 11. I got about six texts, but I, I won't have time for all of them. Let's go to 11.23. Hebrews 11.23. I just want to show you the theme that's running through these last chapters by picking highlights of how to endure suffering in the cause of Christ. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, now watch this, watch this. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So he's opting out of a certain lifestyle here. Verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now pause over that before we read the next verse, which is the motive. This is a Christian hedonist before Christ embracing pain, and you say, well, that's not hedonism. That's not hedonism. Did you notice the word fleeting? Christian hedonists are smart. They're not stupid. If somebody says, come on, you've got to be kidding. You're not going to go to the inner city to live when you can have the security of this place. Christian hedonists are smart. They look at that place and say, yeah, that would be easier. You're right. There would be a lot more physical pleasures there. There would be a lot more comforts, a lot more securities. But you know what? It's fleeting. And here I'm on the doorstep of the devil, and I'm on the brink of heaven. And as long as God gives me life and breath, I'll stand with Jesus here, and I'll pay the price here, and then I will be taken to glory forever. 
Now let's read that next verse so we make sure we get the logic in Moses' mind. Verse 26. Here's how he left fleeting pleasures in Egypt and embraced mistreatment with the people of God. Verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. How so? For he was looking to the reward. Are you... We are born hedonists. If we don't look to that reward, we'll look to another reward. If you don't get your joy from the promise that you will one day be with Christ and it'll be gain, you will get your joy from maximizing as much comforts and pleasures here as you can. Oh, how we need to learn with the book of Hebrews about the better possession and abiding one. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here's the center of our life, right? Christ crucified. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin and let us run with endurance. Well, that's what we need. That's what I need. I'm 56. I don't know if I have a year or 10 or 20 years to go. I just know it seems really short. And I want to do so much to maximize my joy now in Christ and then in Christ by drawing as many people into that fellowship with me. I want to endure. I want to finish well. One of you told me a testimony about your dad finishing well as we were talking about Paul Rhodes' dad. And, and we both said, oh, we want to finish like that. But the last breath, whether it's through our own vomit and pneumonia, I watched a woman die with breast cancer. I, I have lost, in my 22 years of watching people die, I have lost all of Christian deaths. Believe me, they are horrible in many cases. Horrible. And the joy is that they don't curse God. They may not be able to sing. They're drowning in their own vomit. But they can at least not curse God. And Patty didn't curse God. Jesus didn't curse God. It must have been horrible on the cross. I'll, I'll bet he didn't sing. He quoted Psalms, but he didn't sing. It hurt too bad. I want to endure. So here, here, what's the key then? Let us run with endurance. I'm at the end of verse 1. The race that is set before us. Here's the key. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him. All right, yes, Jesus. I'm so thankful. I'm so happy. I'm not trying to do this without Him doing it first that was set before Him endured the cross. See the endurance there? How did He endure the cross? For the joy that was set before Him. How am I to endure and run this race? By the joy that's set before me. I don't know a lot about CRM. I know a little more about interchange because I know Jim Bloom real well. And I just know ministry is hard. Life is hard. And if you're going to keep going, if you're going to endure five, 
10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years? What are you going to look to to keep you going through the barren times? Little tokens of grace and evidence of power and blessing here and a little one here. What are you going to do? And I don't know any solution except for the joy that is us. Okay, last text. Chapter 13, verse 12. There are more. Read Hebrews 10 to 13 and you'll see the rest of them. But here's the last one I'll look at. Chapter 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So now we have our, our model, our example, our savior, our king, our lover. There he is, outside the gate. That means outside the comfort zone and outside the securities. He's dying and he's suffering out there. Verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here, meaning here on this earth, we have no lasting city. We seek a city which is to come. So, CRM and all of its dimensions, would you join me? Pray for me. Would you pray for me? And I'll pray for you in this regard. I have an easy job in many ways. It has its hard parts. I'm a pastor of a, a larger church. I can call my shots. I can come down here to Venezuela if I want to. I can, I can go anywhere, do anything. When you've been in a church for 22 years and they like you, you can write your job description. That's a very dangerous place to be. So pray for me, and I will pray for you that we together will find ways to go outside the camp that is the easy place, the comfortable place, the safe place, the place where you get all the strokes. Let's go outside the camp because that's where Jesus is and let us bear a reproach with him and then here, let's be motivated this way. Here, here on planet Earth, we have no lasting city. We are seeking a city which is to come. Wouldn't it be great to be a part of interchange in the new Jerusalem? I tell you, it will be different. It will be massively different. Wouldn't it be great to be training leaders in the age to come? I do believe we will help one another in the age to come grow in grace forever and ever and ever. But there'll be no more pain and no more tears and no more crying. And if that doesn't grip teenagers and 20-somethings and 30-somethings and baby boomers, then we will wind up serving for worldly reasons. And I don't want Christ to be dishonored or you to miss your calling. So, Father, please, I want to live what I just preached. It's a daily struggle to embrace love, to embrace the perils of loving people, especially when they don't want us around because Jesus says they will hate you, they will cast out your name as evil, they will call you Beelzebul, just like they did Jesus. Lord, help us not to turn away in a huff and take our ball and go home. Grant, I pray that we would come back again and again and again and throw ourselves against the Iwo Jima enemy in the hope that some 
might be saved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.